The scripture for today's sermon is Mark chapter 11, verse 27 through chapter 12, verse 12. The word of God speaks to us. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you the, this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around, around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and, they, and, and him they killed. And so, with many others, some they beat and some they killed, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he has told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is the word of God to us. Good morning, guys. Well, I just wanted to say a really good morning. A big, loud good morning. Hey, I'm glad you guys are here. My name is Chad Kinser, and I serve as, uh, as one of our pastors. And uh, if you've got a Bible, open up to the passage that was just read there in Mark chapter 11. That's where we're going to be today. And uh, if you're jumping in with us today, if you're a guest, we're super glad that you're here. Uh, we are working kind of line by line, chunk by chunk, thought by thought through the Gospel of Mark. We've been there for the better part of a year. We're going to finish that thing uh, at Easter this year. And so uh, if you're looking for something to read in your um, daily reading or you're looking to kind of jump into the Bible this new year, uh, looking for where to read or what to read, you could just settle into the book of Mark with us and, uh, and chart along. And if you are new or maybe you've been around for a while and you wonder why before we uh, begin this moment of the sermon, we stand in the honor of reading God's word. Maybe that's a tradition that you came from and you're familiar with that. And maybe that's something that you're like, hey, why do we do that? I feel like we're just doing up downs in the service. We stand at certain parts, we sit at others, and they tell us to stand again. And I just got comfortable. Why are we standing again? Uh, if you're curious about that, what, we, what we're doing when we say this is the very word of God to us is we believe uh, as a church that these words come to us uh, as the very word of God. And so if God were to open this building and come down and speak to us, what would he say? Uh, he's told us in Scripture that he's bound himself to the words of Scripture. And so these words come to us as if he were standing in this room speaking them to us with that same authority. So we recognize that the king is speaking, and so we want to stand and recognize uh, the voice of our king comes to us. So 
That's the spirit which we approach the scriptures today with this sermon. I wanna pray, you pray with me, I'll pray for you, and then we'll jump into this text. Sound good? All right. Father, we come to you in the name of your son, Jesus. And uh, God, what I'm asking for today and what's been on my heart this morning is that we would have a moment, um, we would have a moment like, like the disciples had in Luke 24 when it says, did not our hearts burn within us when you opened the scriptures to us? Since the beginning of the church, since your resurrection, your people have gathered and your word has been opened and you have formed your people without fail every Lord's Day. And we ask that you do it once again this Lord's Day. God, would you cause our hearts to burn within us? Would you, not just that we open your scriptures and try to do work on them, would you open your scriptures to us and would they do work on us, we pray. We offer this prayer for the variety of places we gather uh, today in Jesus' name. And we all said, amen. 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 Several years ago, I heard uh, someone say, I don't remember how, what the context was, I just remember hearing it, and I've thought about it over the years. The person said, what you really believe comes out when you're squeezed. <laughs> what you really believe comes out when you're squeezed. I've thought of that quote over the years in different ways, but, but the, what it's driving at is this idea that what do you do when your conscience is compromised? What comes out of you in those moments when your conscience is squeezed, as it were. What happens, um, what line do you walk in those moments of suffering, in those moments of the dark day? Who gets the final say over who you really are when your impulses are at conflict with one another? We could apply this kind of scenario in a variety of different ways, but it's true that Whatever you say is forming you is one thing, but what comes out in the moment of pressure is something entirely different. What happens when you're under pressure? What happens when what you've said you've always believed is now in conflict with the path of least resistance? Like that's, that's a more telling matter. What comes out when the temperature rises? The point of that quote and the point of me bringing this up today is it's in those moments that the issue of authority really matters. It's in those moments that the issue of authority really matters and who or what is your real authority will be revealed in those moments. And this is where we are in the Gospel of Mark. We picked back up last week after taking a bit of a hiatus over the holidays and we've picked back up in the most intense portion of this book. Here's what's happening in the Gospel of Mark as we open it today. Chapter 11 marks the arrival of Jesus in Jerusalem, which is the final week of his life. So if you think about the structure of the book, through 10 chapters, we cover nearly three years of the life of Jesus. It's, it's a bit of a flyover. It's a thumbnail sketch. But then in the last six chapters, everything slows down to cover the final week of his life. 10 chapters for three years, six chapters for six days. The stakes are high. The conversations, as we're going to see today, the conversations are heated the volume is cranked. The work of redemption is right around the corner. And this is the moment in the book when I would say the world shrinks to miniature. Everything that's happening in the world, not just then but now, shrinks into miniature. It's not just a moment where we can be a spectator of the man Jesus any longer. If you've been tracking along or maybe you're just sort of on the fringes of faith and you're sort of spectating, what are the claims of Jesus? Or even in this book, what, are, what is Jesus doing and who is he? Maybe you've been on the end of 
the stands and you've just been a spectator to this point, that now we move into a moment where you have to deal with him. You have to come to decision on him. And it's as if now Mark has been building this case, trying to answer the question, who is Jesus? Now he's forcing you to decision. Now he's shifting and he's asking, you might know who he is now. That case has been built. What are you going to do with him? What are you going to do with him? Our passage today is the first of several heated conversations that we're going to see in the next couple of weeks that Jesus is going to have with the religious leaders. And so here's how I want to work through it today. I want to try something totally crazy. I'm typically uh, a pretty predictable three-point preacher uh, in my sermons, but I want to try something crazy today and have five points. All right? All right? I know. It's like, and the shock waves move across the room. But they'll move pretty fast, and I promise we'll get out of here on time. I want to give you kind of, I want to chart through kind of our, our course today, and then we'll jump into it. I want to capture the scene and the essence of this conversation, right? Things begin to pop off. Things begin to get really serious. The volume is cranked. I want to capture the scene, the essence of this conversation. And then I want to talk about their problem, meaning the religious leaders, their problem with Jesus. And then I want to talk about our problem with Jesus. And then the problem with our problem. And then lastly, the God of judgment. Sounds spicy enough, doesn't it? Sounds spicy enough. So capture the essence, the problem, their problem with Jesus, our problem with Jesus, the problem with our problem, and then the God of judgment. Let's jump in back in verse 27. We'll pick this first part piece by piece. It says, they came back in to Jerusalem. Pause there for just a second. This ought to shock us if we remember what we read last week. Maybe you weren't here last week, but we read the portion of Scripture where Jesus goes into the temple and he clears it out. He turns over the tables. He drives out the money changers. They had turned the place of God, which was meant for a place of ministry and peace and priestly presence, to a marketplace. They were putting a price on peace with God as though it can be bought. And Jesus runs in and he drives everybody out. It's a moment of rage. It's a moment of righteous anger. And it's a moment where he was purifying what had been Defiled, And so the next day, as the text moves forward, the reason that this phrase, this beginning phrase, ought to catch us, it's because it's, he goes back to the scene of the crime, as it were, right? The day of drama, the next day, he goes back to that same place, and they're surprised to see him again so quickly. And so it goes on to say, as he was walking into the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. This is the big three in early Jewish culture. Like, these were the most influential groups in their society. These were the leaders of the religious community, but also the civic life of the Jews. And so they confront him. You're back here. You come back to the place where you just embarrassed us yesterday. We've got some words for you. Pick up in verse 28. And they, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? They're referring to what he did yesterday, right? By what authority are you doing these things? By what authority are you turning over our money tables and turning over our system of religion? Who gave you this authority? By what authority do you do them? In verse 29, Jesus said to them, I'll ask you one question. Answer me. I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. So Jesus says, I'll answer your question if you can answer my question. My question comes first, right? And so verse 30, he picks up and here's the question he poses to them. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And he says, answer me. What's Jesus doing here? They're asking him by what authority he can claim to do the things he's doing and by what authority he embarrasses their system of religion. 
And he says, let's not talk about by what authority for a second. Let's just talk about the baptism of John. Was it from heaven or was it from me? So Jesus displaces the focus from himself for a moment and he presents this question about John. Now remember, his whole ministry, the ministry of John, was all about Jesus. John the Baptist is that one crying out in the wilderness for repentance. He was the one baptizing the river Jordan. He was the forerunner to Jesus, preparing the way for the ministry of the Messiah. And he cried out, God's Messiah is coming. That was the whole point of John's ministry. And so he asks, was John's ministry from heaven or not? And so when Jesus asked this, he wasn't rebuking the people. When Jesus asked this, he wasn't giving a trick question or a riddle. He was just asking a clear question because he knows if they can answer this question, if they can deal with this question honestly, they're going to answer their own question to him about the issue of authority. If they can deal with this question honestly, they'll answer their own question. So they huddle up and they try to figure out their response, pick up in 31. And so as they discussed it with one another, saying, well, gosh, if we say from heaven, then he will say, then why don't You believe him, meaning John the Baptist, because John the Baptist told you guys about me. And if we say from John the Baptist, then we're going to have to affirm Jesus. But then if we say from man, well, they were afraid of the people, for everybody held that John was really a prophet. So they realize in the question that Jesus poses back to them about their question, they're caught. They're trying to trap Jesus, and Jesus says, not so fast, my friend, I'll trap you. If we affirm John, then we'll have to affirm Jesus because John testified about him and now we'll stand accused for rejecting God's Messiah. We can't do that because it'll tear down our power and our position and it'll expose us as frauds. But then on the other hand, if we reject John, we will be rejected by the people and there will be an uprising because the people held that John was a legitimate prophet and we can't do that because it'll tear down our power and our positions and we'll be exposed as frauds. And so notice how they answer, verse 33. We don't know. (laughs) So they come at Jesus with a question, who do you think you are? How do you come in here? You're this kid from the backwoods towns of Nazareth. You come from a poor family. We don't even know who your father really is, but you're gonna come in here and tell us that our religion is false. Who do you think you are? You're gonna come at me with an authority question. I'm gonna come at you with a question of legitimacy of God's ministry on the earth. We don't know, they say. And the answer that they give is a lie because they know the answer to the question. But they're scared to answer honestly one way or another because they're way more concerned with covering their own reputations and places of power and position. They had come to a spot. Here's the real tension that they're dealing with. They had come to a spot where their religion and their politics had become so enmeshed that they couldn't pull them apart. Religion and politics, you couldn't tell where the one ended and the other began. God had to be on their side. In their minds, we're the chosen people of God. We're the leaders of God's ministry in the world. We're the chief priests, we're the scribes, and we are the elders. God has to be on our side. And if you're telling us that he's not, well, then it's not us to deal with God. We've got to silence him. That's their conclusion. We don't have to deal with God. God just gets silenced because our power and our position is more important And so then Jesus responds to them, well, if you're not going to answer my question, then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus responds to them, I'm not going to play your games as though I'm the one that's on trial. 
So when I told you that the conversations get heated, (laughs) when the volume gets cranked, when things begin to pop off in this final week of his life, it's not so much anymore who is Jesus. Now the question is, what are you gonna do with him? How are you gonna respond to him when he begins to press? And so here's what happens next. Jesus goes on to tell these guys this parable. He begins to tell them this story, this scenario that's gonna interpret to them the condition of their hearts. He says, hey, there was this landowner and he planted this vineyard and he had some business in another country. So what he did is he hired some tenants. He hired some, um, some, some branch hands to take care of, of his property. And when the time of harvest came, he sent a servant to kind of check in and gather what was going on in the harvest, just check in on the property. But the, the hirelings, they, they didn't like this accountability. And so, and so they, they beat him up and they threw him out. And then the landowner got word of this. And so he sent another one of his servants to go check in and see what was going on with the property and, and check in on just the accountability of the profits of what he had planted there. They didn't like that either, so they treated him shamefully, and they beat him, and they threw him out. And so he sent another one. The same thing happens, but this time, the hirelings, they, they kill this, this one. And then many others came, and they, they kept doing the same sorts of things. But then finally, the landowner was like, I've got to get an answer for the property that I bought for myself, and I've got to have an answer for the vineyard that I planted. I've got to have some sort of insight as to what's going on there. Now I'm going to send my son. Surely they'll respect my son. After all, he's the heir to the property. This ought to come with some sort of weight behind it. He tells him this story. And he says, you know what they did to his son? The same thing they did to all the servants that the landowner sent. They killed him too, thinking that now, if we can just silence all of this accountability, what was once his can now be ours for us to do with what we want. As Jesus looks at him, and they're thinking, well, that, that's, a, that's a rowdy group of people. Surely there's got to be some judgment for them. So he ends this story and he tells them, so what do you think the landowner is going to do? Remember, they just had this conversation where they ask him about his authority. And he responds, hey, don't come at me with authority. I'm going to trap you in your own game of trapping me. I'm going to ask you about the legitimacy of God's ministry on the earth. And so then he tells them this story. And then what happens is he says, what's the landowner going to do? Surely there's going to be a judgment to come. Surely there's got to be some sort of answer for this kind of injustice. And then Jesus ends that story and he quotes in chapter 12, verse 10 and 11. Look at it with me. He quotes from Psalm 118. Look at what he says. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this was actually the Lord's doing. And it's become marvelous in our eyes. He's saying, have you not read this? Now, when Jesus quotes this, things begin to become crystal clear as to what this whole story was about to the religious leaders. That psalm had always been read by the people of Israel as a prophetic messianic psalm, a prophetic messianic prayer. So when Jesus ends this parable by quoting this, all of a sudden they clue in, he's telling this parable about us. God is the landowner. The religious leaders are the tenants meant to keep the vineyard for the flourishing of the people of Israel and the nations. And the servants are the prophets that God had sent to the people all throughout the Old Testament, calling for them to repent from sin, calling for them to turn from sin. And they were repeatedly, all the prophets, you can go back through the Old Testament, repeatedly rejected, beaten, cast out, and killed. And now he's applying sonship to the Father and this messianic promise to himself. And they realize 
Jesus is actually now coming around to answer our question by what authority he does these things. You come at me and you ask what authority I have to come into the temple. That temple is my temple. And you've made it a place of politics and of power. And you've made it to a place where the poor are oppressed. And so I'm going to tear it down and I'll rebuild it in three days. And the irony and the tragedy of this moment is that Israel had been the nation that was rejected by the nations around them. And now they are the ones who are rejecting the Messiah that is actually coming through them for the nations. That's the irony and the tragedy of this. God's saying, you are my chosen people. Through you will become the Messiah for the nations. The nations have rejected you, but now you're the ones who are rejecting my Messiah for the nations. And so this is what Jesus meant when he said, I'm actually the stone that you are rejecting And I'm the cornerstone. I'm the foundation of God's redemptive work in the world. It's going to fall on my head through my suffering. And so when they heard this, when they realized that this parable of judgment was actually about them and that the reconciliation of the parable was coming through the one that they raged against, they had their decisions made up. They had their minds made up. They were resolved. We've got to shut this man down. He's upending our power. He's upending our position. He's upending our prestige. If we submit to him, then what happens to us? We have to silence him. Now, that's the text. That's the scene. That's the nature of the conversation. Now, what's their problem with Jesus? What's their real problem with Jesus? Now, here's the deal, right? These were the religious leaders. These were the most influential people in Israel in the day, specifically of the religious system. Their problem wasn't with God. They were religious people. They talked about God all the time. They thought about God. They were holding people accountable to the Sabbath day. They loved God so far as they conceived of God. But their problem was with God coming on a collision course with their structures of power and personal agenda. That was their problem. Not with God, but on the fact that he was now coming to bear with what they loved and their power and prestige. When God confronted their agenda, when they were squeezed, what they really believed was revealed, right? When they were squeezed, when they were put under pressure, what they really believed was revealed. Their solution was, we've got to silence God. If God's confronting us, then we'll just shut him up. We'll even kill him if that's what it takes. Now, their problem, chipper news of the day, their problem actually sheds light on our problem. Their problem actually sheds light on our problem. When the authority of God confronts us, our solution usually isn't too different. You and I love the authority of Jesus so far as we conceive of it. Our problem isn't with the authority of Jesus. We love bumper stickers. God is in control. God is in in charge. We love the authority of Jesus, except in the case of money and my situation. Right? The religious leaders, they loved God, except for when God is on a collision course with their agenda. We love the authority of Jesus, except in the case of money and my situation. Here's what I mean. What we do when the authority of Jesus touches our conscience in ways that we don't want him to reveals what we really believe. What do you do when the authority of Jesus 
touches the issue of your money. Because he actually talks about it. It's not the church that talks about it, and you're like, I hate the church because they talk about money. Hey, we're just actually trying to say what Jesus says. Right? When Jesus talks about your money and generosity, what do you do? When Jesus talks about sexual lust and the secret intentions and thoughts of your heart, what do you do? When the issue of gossip and a lack of love and patience for people that are different than you is addressed, what do you do? When Jesus talks about loving your enemies and praying for and even blessing those who persecute you, what do you do? You see, when the authority of Jesus goes to those places, when it addresses our situation, I love the authority of Jesus, but then it addresses our situation. Like the religious leader, we typically have one of two responses. When it addresses our situation, we like to chunk the authority of Jesus and emphasize his kindness, right? Well, he'll forgive me. Like, he'll forgive me. That's a, he's a forgiving God. Oh, that's what the cross is for. So he's a God of love after all. He loves me right where I am. He receives me just as I am. It's the church people that are so judgmental. God will just love me right here, just like this, and he'll forgive me after all. When the authority of Jesus addresses our situation, one of our typical responses is that we'll just chunk his authority and emphasize his kindness so we can keep him around. The other response is that we'll just deconstruct and not believe anymore. We'll just deconstruct and get rid of God altogether. When Jesus confronts us, it's just easier, isn't it? When Jesus confronts us, isn't it just easier to change what you believe or just not believe anymore? Isn't that easier? And so here's what he's uncovering in this passage for the religious leaders. And here's what the religious leaders expose about us. No matter what kind of prayer you've prayed in the past. Because so much of the time we want to bank our security with God based on a prayer we've prayed back there in the past. No matter what kind of prayer you've prayed in the past, your response to his authority reveals who your God and Lord really is. That's what this whole thing is about. Because the religious leaders had prayed all kinds of prayers. They prayed daily in the temple. And he's saying, I'm not so much concerned with what prayers you're praying. When the authority of God shows up, how you respond to that reveals who your God and who your Lord really is. And I'm not putting that out there to make anyone doubt their salvation or be scared of it. I'm saying, regardless of what prayers you've prayed in the past, where is your heart today? Where's your heart today? Now, their problem actually sheds light on our problem. But now, <laughs> the fourth move of the day, if you're tracking along, what's the problem with our problem? It may be true that we don't want God to confront us. And yet, we want his kindness, don't we? We love God's kindness. We want his grace. We want his forgiveness. We really love his restoration and his comfort and his peace. But the problem is, none of those things are actually real if you don't have his authority. 
Those things are worth wanting and those things are worth craving only because he brings them with authority. You see it? You can't have his kindness without his authority because his authority is what makes his kindness truly kind. The one with all authority is offering me terms of peace. You can't have his grace and forgiveness without his authority. It's what makes his grace and forgiveness actually meaningful. When the judge forgives you, you're really forgiven. Right? You can't have his peace without his authority. Without his authority, our sense of peace is just wishful thinking at best. It's just sort of pick-me-up chicken soup for the soul, right? Because for peace to really hold you, it has to come from the all-knowing maker of heaven and earth. And with his authority, he says, I've got you. It only comes from authority that his peace is actually peaceful. I got you. And so what Jesus is saying in this whole conversation, this whole intense volume-cranked moment, is I'm not here to be put on trial as though I'm the one who has to answer your demands. That's not why I've come. And I'm also not here for you to co-opt whatever part of me you want that fits your agenda for you just to then neglect the bigger part of my authority. You can't just pick and choose the parts of me that you want. I'm saying I've come with all of me. And so this lands at the final part of the day, the God of judgment. And so what happens is Jesus responds to these religious leaders who reject his authority. They're trying to trap him, and he responds to them with this parable, this story about judgment. And you're thinking, Jesus, if you want to draw people to yourself, don't talk about judgment. Right? He responds to them with this parable of judgment. And to be clear, I'm not going to do a matrix backbend. This parable really is about judgment. It really is about judgment. He really is warning them that the landowner is coming to the people and he wants, he wants an answer for his property. And they've killed his son. What's the landowner going to do? This really is a warning of judgment. But hang with me. Let this strike you for a second. Take a deep breath. Realize that what's happening here, we don't know if it's a Monday or a Tuesday in this final week of his life, but in just a matter of days from the moment when this confrontation takes place, the moment where he's warning them of the judgment to come in an act of incomprehensible love, the judgment he's warning them about is actually also going to fall on his own head for those who would look to him. The one who's speaking a parable of judgment is about to take judgment in their place. The authority that they and we try to silence will actually speak. They're thinking, he's trying to deal with us, let's just silence him. The problem is the authority they're trying to silence is actually about to speak all the more loudly when he's resurrected from the dead. Because when you're resurrected from the dead, you can't be shut up anymore. And so fast forward in the scriptures to Acts chapter 4. You don't have to turn there. It'll be on the screen. The apostle Peter preaches a sermon in the early church, and it goes like this. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, you tried to silence. But what did God do? He raised him from the dead. This Jesus is the stone. Remember what he quoted in this parable. 
Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, but he has become the cornerstone and there is salvation and no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let it stun you today. Let it stun you. Let it strike you. Let it spike up your attention that the very voice that we've tried to silence is the one that cries out for our release. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. The voice that we've tried to mute is the voice that calls out for our release. The very authority that we often seek to avoid is the same authority that leverages his power for our forgiveness. He, the authority that we don't want, is actually the authority that is our advocate before the Father. By his stripes, we are healed. Man, let that stun you. They're trying to trap him because they don't know what to do with his authority when his authority touches their consciences in ways that confront them. But what he's trying to do is bring life. He leverages his authority for their release if they would but turn to him. And so I've got a couple of questions as we land today. Where where in your life are you trying to silence Jesus in favor for your own way? Where in your life are you trying to silence Jesus? You know those moments where you're like on your commute to work or you're just sitting of an evening watching TV or maybe like you're listening to a podcast and you just feel this nudge to pray or this nudge of something going on in your life or this nudge of something in your conscience that you know doesn't stand before the face of the living God. You know those moments, right? Where in those places are those moments happening, but you're shoving it? That's the issue of the religious leaders that's exposing us. Now, twice in this passage, it says something striking here. Twice in this passage, it says that the religious leaders, they didn't submit to Jesus precisely because two times it says they were afraid of the people. Their fear of the opinion of others and the approval of others actually kept them from dealing honestly with Jesus. My second question is this. Is there any place in your life that the approval of others is keeping you from honoring Jesus? Is there any place in your life, or maybe to frame it a different way, where the authority that you're giving to other people is trumping the authority that God actually has over you? Man, I wasn't planning to bring it back up, but just again, it's striking me. Let it stun you that the voice, the voice we try to silence is actually the voice that calls for our release. The appeal of this text is instead of silencing the authority of God, let it breathe. Let it breathe. Let's pray together. Father, would you help us identify the places? Holy Spirit, I'm asking even now, would you, would you perform the ministry that you've always performed, which is leading us into truth? Would you please perform that ministry in this moment? And would you help us identify the places in our life where we want to divorce your authority from your grace? 
as though we can have one without the other. Father, would you call us to a holistic faith? Would you call us to a faith that's integrated, that fit, fits together, where your voice is the loudest voice in us, and we say to you, yes, Lord, have your way. Jesus, thank you that when you speak, you don't speak for our punishment, you speak for our release. Thank you for your prayer. Father, forgive them. We just even confess we agree with you. We don't often know what we do. Jesus, would your authority breathe in us? We offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.